Morning, Scottsdale Bible Church, and greetings from Phoenix Seminary, which is your seminary. I didn't die, I'm still here. I'm over there. And some have asked about the uh, President's class. When's it going to start up again? For those of you who don't know, President's class is a seminary course I teach right here at Scottsdale Bible Church on Monday nights from 6 to 8.30. There are no grades, no exams, no tests, no attendance. That's why we probably have about 650 people showing up. But the fact is, uh, we've gone through the first half of the book of Romans, and January 21st, January 21st, 6 o'clock, 6.30 here, we'll begin the next seven lectures, and we'll finish the last half of the book of Romans. And so let me invite all of you and any of you to come. It's a great way to deepen in your understanding of of the scriptures. Well, we, we've entered into a new year, 2013. Apparently, I'm reading that the number 13 is weirding some people out about the year. Since when have we become superstitious? And yet I have noticed that people have different reactions to starting this new year. Mixed emotions. Some are embracing it, and they're excited about all the possibilities, and yet I'm finding other a bit fearful of what this year is going to be holding. And you wonder, why is the difference? Well, I, some of you are excited about this year, and some of you are definitely not excited at all. The difference really has to do with, do you understand the concept of hope? Very simple concept of, of hope. The absence of hope is despair. Now, we've been told that just about everybody walks around with a quiet dose of it, despair, hopelessness, do you understand that hope is basically having everything to do with the future and how you view the future? Hope is embracing it with anticipation. On the other hand, hope is the expectation that the purposes of God will be accomplished this year, no matter what. And if we're the children of God, since when did we become fearful of the purposes of God being accomplished? Now, now, if there's no purposes of God, if you kind of think, well, I don't know if I, I believe that, well, then let me tell you what you don't believe. If you do not believe the purposes of God will be accomplished this year, not only in this world, our country, and in your life, I'll tell you why you're not believing it. Because you're struggling if you whether you even believe there's someone there to accomplish those purposes. And we're talking about what do you really believe? Is there someone there? Is there a God or, or not? Maybe not. Maybe that light at the end of the tunnel really is a train. And it's just going to splatter you this year. And your fears are well-founded. And it's all about chance. You know, as Pastor Emeritus of Scottsdale Bible Church, pastored here 25 years, I've got skin in this game. i got blood and sweat in most of you. And as Pastor Emeritus, I am, as a father would be concerned about the souls of his children, I am focused on your souls, and I want to make sure your souls are healthy for this coming year. Because you see, what is, brings life to a soul is hope. And the absence of it basically shakes the souls up. And when you have no sense of hope, the very root, the very root of your life, your spiritual life, your soul, is in danger the question again is, can you do what Peter has asked us to do? Peter, talk about a tough time of not having much hope. Who was the president? Nero was the president of Rome when Peter wrote this book. In 1 Peter, 
And I mean, you understand, Nero had murdered his mother for political gain. Uh, Nero basically was a perverted gentleman, not even a gentleman. And it was tough. He was after the Christians. And all the stories you've heard about Christians being eaten alive by animals and Circus Maximus and all that stuff going on, it's all true. It was tough being a Christian at that time. And talk about hope. Do you think they were looking forward to the next year? And yet Peter writes this letter, and Peter knows that he's not going to die of natural causes, and he ends up crucified upside down in Rome. And yet Peter writes this letter of, of hope, and he says this in 1 Peter 3.13. Uh, 3, he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, doing the right thing, you're still blessed so he says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ. Here's what he wants us to do this year. Sanctify. The word means set apart Christ as your Lord in your hearts. Let people know that this faith of yours in Christ is something that really is real, something that's important to you. Your life centers on it. So he says you do that by always being ready to make, to give a defense, a reason for the hope that lies within you when you're asked. And you do it with gentleness, and you do it with respect. Interesting, he says you sanctify Christ as your Lord, that your faith is something alive and real, when you can, when you can, give a reason for the hope that lies within you when you're asked. And not just by asked of other people, but from time to time when you ask yourself, is there anyone up there? Do I really believe there's a God who will accomplish his purposes in my life this year? You know, there's a real rise in atheism. And it's caused some Christian soul to shrink a bit. See, it comes down to this. Why do you have... This is really personal. We, we are not God's uh, defense attorneys. He can afford better than us. We, we are not the defenders of truth. This is about you, your soul, your faith, can you give a reason why you hope he's there and will accomplish his purposes in your life? And that's really the question because we live in a culture of a rise of atheism and they call themselves the new atheists, although there's really nothing new about it. September 12, 1905, approximately 100 people met in a loft over Peck's restaurant at 140 Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. Purpose of the meeting was to strategize on how to overthrow the Christian worldview in believing in God and replace it with atheism. Upton Sinclair was part of that meeting. Clarence Darrell, famous known for the scope trials, part of that meeting. And their target, their target to change the culture from believing there's a God to believing there is no God, the universities. The universities. Later joined like men with John Dewey, with the American Association of University Professors, who basically their Bible became the humanist uh, manifesto, basically replacing a belief in God with atheism. This began over 100 years ago. Say, so, well, it's still around? Still around? It's permeated just about all our universities for years, and it's permeated the leadership and the culture that we live in. This rise of new atheism, there's nothing really new about it, but they do have some new heroes. So there are people who are not, not afraid to say, they don't want to say they're atheists, that still has a kind of enigma to it, but they'll say, well, I'm a non-theist. I'm a non-theist. 
And they don't mind at all mocking the fact that you believe that there is a God, there is someone there who will accomplish those purposes in your life. What heroes, Daryl, are you talking about? Well, Stephen Hawking, the British physicist, famed author for his work in time and space theory. He was quoted recently as saying, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. End of quote. Bill Mayer, popular television host and po political commentator, well, he tells us, quote, we are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I do believe that, he says. I think religion stops people from thinking. I think it justifies crazies. And that's why he refers to all Christians as, quote, wackos, end of quote. Sam Harris, author of Letter to the Christian Nation, which the Wall Street Journal called it, quote, a breath of fresh fire. He, he wrote this, no myth needs to be embraced for us to commune with the profundity of our circumstances. No personal God need to be worshipped for us to live in all at the beauty and the immensity of the creation. Interesting, he still calls it creation. And of course, we have Richard Dawkins, the well-known English evolutionary biologist who wrote the book that was called, in New York Times, one of the top 10 bestsellers of that year in 2006. On Amazon bestsellers list, it reached number two, The God Delusion. And he wrote this, We are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in, some of us just go one God further. The only watchmaker is the blind force of physics. End of quote. You know, if you're really struggling with this next year, wondering, well, I, I, I'm a bit fearful. I don't know what's going to happen. You're struggling with hope. You're struggling with hope because you're not so sure God will accomplish his purposes in your life this year. And you're struggling with that because you're not too sure. You're asking in the quiet darkness of the night the question to yourself, do you believe God is even there? Or have you become, like the rest of our culture, a non-theist in practice and theory? Well, can we do what Peter tells us to do here? Can you give a reason for the hope that lies within you? And if we're going to do it, we have less than seven minutes to do it. Because people will tune you out in seven minutes if you don't start making sense. And I know your attention span. You will tune yourself out in less than seven minutes if you're not making sense to yourself when you ask the question. So are we all going to be, end up being atheists? Personally, I don't believe in atheists. Atheists don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. About a month ago, I, I got a call on my cell phone in my office and the uh, area code was 704. I know anybody in 704 must be selling something. And I answered it, and it was the wrong number. I have a lot of fun with non -number, uh, wrong numbers. People say, oh, I'm sorry, it's the wrong number. I said, no, 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 I, I'm Pastor Daryl, and this is a divine appointment. How can I pray for you? <laughs> Usually the next thing I hear is click. <laughs> and this lady, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, click. About five minutes later, uh, the phone rings again, 704. 
I said, this poor gal, she, she can't get the right number. So I, I, I said, it's Pastor Daryl again, another divine appointment. I guess you can't get the right number. She goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Pastor, I, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in any of that stuff. But my life is falling apart. Will you pray for me? <laughs> I don't believe in atheists. I don't care what they say. And I'm going to give you a reason this morning why it is I don't believe in atheists. When I'm asked to give a reason for the hope that lies within my life, why do I have a hope that God is there and will engage his purposes in my life? Answer is very simple. Moral imperative. I usually answer it with a little bit of attitude. Oh, moral imperative. And then I don't say another word. I make them beg. Jesus is something about casting pearls before swine. I'm not about throwing pearls around here. And so the person doesn't say anything more, I, I, I leave it there. Oh, the moral imperative. That's why I know and believe there's a God. Now, if they say, well, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, you wouldn't really be interested because you don't really care. Well, no, no, I do, I do care. I said, no, no, you don't. I do. No, you don't. <laughs> I make them beg before I will explain to them what I mean because I'm going to do it in less than seven minutes I mean by the moral imperative. You see, there are a lot of philosophical arguments for the existence of God. There's, for example, the cosmological argument. I mean, uh, every, thing, every effect has a cause. Cause is bigger than the effect. Look at the creation. Something causes the creation. But all that really creates is more arguments. Then there's the theological arguments that, well, look at the design of the universe. Look at the design of the body. That means there's got to be an intelligent design who, who designed it, but all that does is create more arguments, and they can't argue those arguments in less than seven minutes. And that's all I have. That's all I'm going to give myself when I ask myself the question, Daryl, give a reason why you believe that God is there. Or my task is simply prepare you to briefly give a reason for the hope that lies within you. So when I'm asked, it's the moral imperative. Two words. Oh. And I say it like, oh, haven't you heard? Oh, it's the moral imperative. It was the response that brought two brilliant, celebrated atheists, not only to God, but to Christ. One came out of Oxford, a brilliant intellectual, taught his whole life at Cambridge. He came not only to God, comes to Christ because of the response I'm about to give you, the moral imperative. The other one, well-known, world-leading scientist, so much so he headed up the Genome Project for America, actually completed it under budget, which was quite a miraculous feat. And because of this moral argument, the moral imperative, he not only comes to God, he comes to Christ. Of course, I'm talking about C.S. Lewis. I'm talking about Dr. Francis Collins. It was a moral imperative that not only brought them to believing in God from being an atheist, but actually brought them to Christ himself. The moral imperative. You really want to know what it is? No, you don't. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to beg a little here. Moral imperative is the issue of having a sense of right and wrong. This, this deep sense of moral judgments, this deep desire for justice. I mean, as, as children, we, we, we cried for it. When you were little and your big brother got more ice cream than you, what did you scream? It's not fair. It's not fair. Where did you learn that? You didn't learn it. 
That was hardwired, ingrained within you, a desire for justice. It's like you're appealing to some standard out there. It's not fair, and you expect other people to know what you're talking about. And then finally, our dear dads have to give us the, the big talk. I'm talking about the sex talk. They never got that one straight. Go to mom. But the fact is they gave the other big talk, which was basically a talk on son, daughter, the world is not, is not fair. And that's true, but we don't believe it for a moment. There's a deep sense of moral imperative. There's a deep desire for justice, and we are born with it. In the most recent studies of infants, let me quote to you some of their conclusions, and I quote, Babies aged six months old have already developed a strong moral code, according to psychologists. Psychology, my BAs in psychology, we were always taught we come to this world with a blank slate. That basically everything we believe in all moral consciousness is something developed through our experience and our teaching. Not according to the most recent studies. I continue the quote. They may be barely able to sit up, let alone take their first steps, crawl or talk, but researchers say they can still tell the difference between good and evil. An astonishing series of experiments is challenging the view that human beings are born as blank slates and that our morality is shaped by our experience. Instead, they suggest that concepts of good and bad may be hardwired within the brain at birth. We appeal to a sense of right and wrong, justice. And it is true with every human being throughout every culture. Now, it may change from culture to culture, but basically it's the same. All cultures agree it's not a good idea to eat your mother. You know, in the first service, I said that and not one response. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe some of you ate your mother, I guess. You know, I don't know what's going on here. But they have found in all the anthropological studies, every human being in every culture, there is this deep desire for justice, and there is a sense within that culture, which is pretty universal, of some things are right. And some things are wrong. By the way, this was the argument the Apostle Paul used. When he began this book of Romans, it says this in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The word wrath, or gay, simply means the displeasure. The displeasure God has for sin. For the displeasure of God is being revealed, not in the future, he's talking right now, today. The displeasure of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now watch what we do. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Then he affirms what is placed within every human being with the argument of the creation and the presence of his power and his glory. But what does he mean? He's placed the evidence of himself, his existence, that he is real, that he's placed it within us. So somehow we know this, but we repress this truth in unrighteousness. What's he talking about? At the end of chapter 2, he tells you. In verse 14, he says in Romans 2, For when Gentiles, goyim, that's us, versus Jews who had the law, we didn't have the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, that's the Ten Commandments, the moral code of God, these, not having a law, are a law to themselves, 
in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So on that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. What he's saying in every culture, there is a sense, this consciousness. Have you ever thought about that? If we just kind of came from amino acids and it was kind of through chance, chance, chance. When did we start having consciousness that I can go, whoa, one, two, three, four, five, I got hands. And then when would I have this consciousness that would immediately have given me a sense of moral law? Unless a moral lawgiver planted and placed that within me from the very beginning of my creation. Holly uh, is part of a book club. And these, these ladies read the most interesting books, and I always have Holly read them to me so she doesn't continue to be smarter than I am. <laughs> Some months ago, they read the book, The Social Path Next Door. Now, now why would a group of ladies want to read the book, The Social Path Next Door? But I do know their husbands, and I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I had Holly read the book to me, or at least you know, give me the, the success of the book, and I read some portions of it. And what's interesting to me about the book is that we have, we have a diagnosis. We actually have a psychological diagnosis for one who has no sense of right and wrong. When somebody has no desire for justice, no sense of right or wrong, the diagnosis that we call them a sociopath or sociopathic. That is the mental problem. I don't know, who are the wackos here? I was reading a review in Harper's Magazine of a new book written by Alex Rosenberg. Uh, Dr. Alex Rosenberg is the chairman of the philosophy department at Duke University. Now, Duke University used to be a Christian Methodist university. Uh, but now, its chairman of its philosophy department is an avowed atheist who has written this, this book that basically was reviewed in Harper Magazine by another atheist. Uh, the article of the essay is The Reason for Living uh, the Good Life Without God by Christopher R. Biha. And as he reviewed this particular book, The Atheist Guide to Reality by Dr. Alex Rosenberg, it was interesting to read his review. For example, he says, quote, speaking of Rosenberg's book, there can't possibly be a design to the universe, Rosenberg says, or a purpose to our presence in it. Watch this. For that matter, physics also dictates the impossibility of free will. For evolutionary reasons that are themselves dictated by the laws of physics, we have developed brains that give us the impression of both personal volition and design in the universe. This impression is false. And he comes to the end of his book with conclusions. The review says, finally, Rosenberg plainly states that it is futile to seek a good reason to go on living because he says there isn't. In exchange for giving up our reasons for living, Rosenberg offers us medication. He says, if meaninglessness makes it impossible to get out of bed, in the morning, he writes, you should try Prozac. This isn't a passing suggestion. It appears repeatedly throughout his book, The Good Life Without God, Prozac. 
Now, some will say, well, I guess it's all going to come down to faith. What do you mean by that? It's all going to be down to faith. What is faith? The intellectual, sophisticated will say, well, I, I don't believe in faith. Oh, beloved, well, then you can be intellectual and sophisticated too if you want. Because all you're going to do is say the same thing because we don't believe in faith. Faith is not something you believe in. You don't have faith in faith. Faith is something that you place into, you trust something, and everyone lives by faith. Everybody's going to trust something or someone. Have you ever eaten in a restaurant? You don't know if the chef washed his hands. And they bring that stuff out, and the more expensive it is, and the less there's on a plate, you're impressed, and you just put that down. Don't tell me you do not live by faith. You jump in the airplane... They now lock the front door of the pilots. You don't know if those guys are sober in there. And after this week, you really don't know. <laughs> and yet you just sit down in one of those seats. They put the back of the plane on fire. You're gone to New York. You tell me you don't live by faith. Everybody lives by faith. Faith is simply a choice. Faith is simply a choice you make based on what you believe to be true. So the point is a choice is made by faith. The question is what undergirds your choices of what you believe to be true and thus you place your faith in them. Think of it this way. There's two stories. You have one life, one shot at this. And you kind of would like to get it right the first time. So you've got a choice, not a three, four, or five. You've got a choice of two stories. Two stories. One story, there's a creator. God exists. He is there. He's engaged in his creation. And God, God will accomplish his purposes no matter how you voted, no matter what you think, no matter about the economics or even our culture. We may no longer be the moral majority, but we are the faithful remnant. And maybe we need to start viewing ourselves more as a remnant but that being the case, there is a creator, God, who is a moral lawgiver, and he instilled that sense of that moral imperative in every human being. He's placed it within them so they will know that he is and that he is there engaged and accomplishing his purposes in their life. Or the other story is that there is no God. Impersonal chance impersonal chance brought everything into being including you and including your consciousness including your sense of right and wrong and morality and justice and there is no meaning to life there is no purpose there is no design to it now let me just ask you which is the better story one hope freedom two prozac I don't know about you, but when I'm asked, or I have those moments that there's such an accumulation of disappointments in my life that I ask, God, are you there? Daryl, do you believe the very root that God is? And when I answer that question, whether I ask it or someone else asks me, I can do it in less than seven minutes. I can do it less than that. The answer is, Daryl, don't forget the moral imperative. What's that? Daryl, do you really want to know? Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. 
Daryl, the moral imperative is that God has placed deep within you his moral law, the moral imperative, a sense of right and a sense of wrong, and a deep desire for justice. And God placed that within you so that you would know in your consciousness that he is. And if he is, he's fully engaged with carrying out his purposes for your life this year, 2013. Why would you be walking around and despairing? But in hope, we begin a new year. Year's 2013. Some of you are approaching this with mixed emotions. Some of you embrace it and you're anxious to find out, oh God, what are going to be your purposes this year for our country, for my life, for my business, my family? Because God, I'm going to be the last person afraid of your purposes in my life. Do you understand the concept of hope? Job 42.2, Job finally gets it. After kind of dealing with his world falling apart, he wants to sue God. He wants to take God to court. Finally, by the time you get to Job 42, Job says, I repent and I get it. I finally get it. And in verse 2, he says this, what I get is God, no purpose of God will be thwarted. Isn't that a great word? I love it. Thwarted. No purpose of God will be thwarted. Whatever God purposes to do, it will be done this year. We get to have the front row seats. And as a remnant of believers in this culture, we get to engage with our culture with this hope. Give a reason. Hope that lies within you. You can do it within 10 seconds. Oh, why do you believe if there's a God? Oh, moral imperative. Well, what is that? You don't want to know. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. And what is the moral imperative? God has placed and made himself known to me by placing deep within me a sense of right, a sense of wrong, and a deep desire for justice. And therefore, God's purposes in my life and in this world will not be thwarted. Therefore, my prayer is, God, lead on. God, Lead on. Pray with me. And while your heads are bowed, let me just ask you, let's do a little soul work because that's what I'm here for. I'm concerned about your souls. And I know your soul is shaken up when you do not have hope. And I know what squeezes the hope out of you is the very root of your faith. Give me a reason for the hope that lies within you. Quietly, just quietly, right now, give yourself the reason why you still hope that God is there and will engage this year in your life. Father, I don't know what the others are saying to you. But I know for me, I have hope. The reason for my hope is the moral imperative. God, you made yourself known to me.
to all of us by placing something within us that would never be there if it wasn't for you. And so, Father, thank you for the gift of revealing yourself to us. Now, Lord, we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion, that this would be a time that if we were ever to even ask, but would God ever engage? He may be there, but will God, would you engage in our lives? And Father, your purpose, you wanted us with you forever. You wanted to redeem your creation so that creation would not be a waste of your time. And so, Father, you provided forgiveness for us. You provided a path and a way back. And it was your son who would come and come under your wrath and your ultimate judgment of our sin by dying on that cross in our place. And all you asked of us in your grace and your mercy is just to tell the truth that we're sinners. And we know it because we have the moral imperative. But Father, we also know we need forgiveness. And so we came to you asking for that forgiveness in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, now we celebrate. We remember, we reflect. 